Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. On this episode of the Swallier Pride podcast, we have Dr. Erin Sizemore. She's an associate professor and chair of the Speech, Language, and Hearing Sciences program at Mount St. Joseph University. Her clinical work and research largely focus on issues related to children in the birth to three age range and their families, including children impacted by the opioid epidemic. Additionally, Dr. Sizemore has a deep commitment to supporting students from diverse backgrounds. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you are a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, Erin. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for asking me. Yes, of course. All right. So tell people a little bit about yourself. I'm Erin Riedel Sizemore. I've been a speech pathologist for a little over 20 years now. That was a little shocking the other day when I actually thought about that. And I've spent the majority of my career working with um, children in kind of the birth to three age range. Did My dissertation was looking at how feeding and swallowing disorders impact families. I've worked for Cincinnati Children's Hospital. And then more recently, I moved into a new position at Mount St. Joseph University, which is a small university on the west side of Cincinnati, where I am the um, department chair and the program director for a brand new starting master's program. Awesome. Oh, that sounds exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's dive in. What do you want to talk about today? Well, you know, recently, um, I've been fortunate to work with an interdisciplinary group of individuals to really start looking at how children who've been exposed to, uh, opioids in utero are, are um, impacted when it comes to their speech and their language and their feeding. You know, I think most people who live in the United States 
know that we have a really significant opioid problem here in the United States. And what's interesting um, in the region that we live, it's called the tri-state area. So um, Cincinnati sits kind of right in a little triangle with Ohio, Indiana, and Kentucky. Um, and we have a, an extremely significant problem with opioids here in the in the tri-state area. And so, you know, clinically, we were seeing more and more of these children who have this exposure and it's not unusual, like the neonatal abstinence syndrome, um, which is the clinical condition that these infants are first identified with, has been around for a long time. It's been around, you know, since the, at least in the research I know, since the late um, 90s, people were talking about it. More recently, people are calling it, though, neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome, which is specific to opioid withdrawal. So NAS, neonatal abstinence syndrome, wasn't exclusively opioids, but neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome is and as the heroin, and now it's really more synthetic opioid uh, epidemic has has taken hold, there's just been such a dramatic increase in the number of children who've had exposure and or are born with signs of it at birth. And so I think as a speech language pathologist, one of the things that's been really interesting to me is to kind of watch the trajectory of these babies when they're born and then they come to you for services around feeding and swallowing. And then as they get a little bit older and then they have challenges around their particularly their language development. And then as they get even older, looking at some of the research that's looking at kind of the long-term problems that these children are showing up with in, for us as speech pathologists and then for you know the schools in general. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So I got interested in working with this population um, because of a colleague of mine at the University of Cincinnati. Leslie Razor-Becker is a speech-language pathologist who I've worked with for years when I worked at the University of Cincinnati. And then she's also a good friend. And we were talking about early intervention and just some kind of general projects I had in mind or things I wanted to to explore. And we started talking about opioids and what happens to these children. And she said something to me one day that really, really stuck with me. And she said, you know, if we could get people to understand that these children's brains are different, then I think we would win half the battle that we're fighting with them already. And it it took me a little bit of time to like think about it and process it. But I was like, you know, we talk about fetal alcohol syndrome and people like very clearly accept that those children are different because they look different. They have physical characteristics that's often associated with it. Or we talk about children who've been exposed to lead, which has been around for so long. I mean, think about the surveillance programs that we have for lead in the United States. But these babies are born and they don't look necessarily any different. And they don't always have that history that goes with them. So they show up in preschool classrooms and people are saying, oh, they're just a behavior problem or, you know, they're kind of labeled as difficult children because we know their executive functioning is impaired by this opioid exposure. And and she was kind of working with some different centers and through some different issues around how do we help support behavior in the classroom or communication in the classroom for these children. And she, you know, it just really stuck with me. Like we do all this MRI research or we look for all these differences in the brain to say, oh, that's the cause. Well, here's a group of kids who we know what is impacting their brain. We might not know how, but we know there's something in their brain and we are, we're just pretending like, oh, well, their signs at birth went away. So these group of kids must just be okay now. Yeah, yeah. This is also fascinating to me, and I will admit I know nothing about this population. I know nothing about working with with this population at all. So this is this is super helpful, super informative. So I think one of the things that is also very important to people 
for people to think about is, is the prevalence of children who are born with neonatal abstinence syndrome or neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome. And remember, those are only the children who are born with signs or symptoms of exposure. And there are, are children out there who we know have exposure who might not be born with that. So they still have that opportunity for difference in brain development in utero, but they aren't giving us red flags at birth. And looking at some of the um, data on the children who are born with neonatal abstinence syndrome, we know that in the most impacted or the most heavily um, states with the highest rates, we know that those rates can be, you know, about 13 so that when they categorize them, the healthcare utilization data from 2021, the highest states were over 13, almost 13 per 1,000 children. So, and then we think about Down syndrome. Well, Down syndrome is about one in 700 children. So if you think about the fact that in some of these states, neonatal opioid exposure is 12 to 13 times more common than Down syndrome, this is a pretty significant number of children that are in our, that are in our schools and potentially on our caseload. And again, people are, I think that's kind of where one of my passions came from working with Leslie was this idea of advocacy. Like these are children who people don't, you know, they don't recognize that these are kids who are coming to the table with all these differences physically, let alone what goes on in the environment in which they're living or they grew up in. And so there, there's a really unique opportunity for us to advocate for these children because we understand what they need in terms of their executive functioning. And we know that speech and language is the significant challenge for them, at least um, in early childhood and early elementary school. There's pretty good data about that. Interesting. All right. Can we can we sort of start at birth and maybe s- talk about some things that you might see? I think, you know, you said feeding and swallowing is usually one of the beginning signs. Yeah. So babies are usually when they're born with neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome or NOWS, they have myriad of symptoms that they present with. And these, you know, often include irritability. It does include uh, feeding and swallowing difficulties. It's interesting. Some of the data on what feeding looks like it, at least from the studies that I have seen, you know, it's, it's kind of, um, I don't want to say all over the place, but they're, they're infants who have difficulty with state regulation. So when we think about what we expect to see in terms of challenges around feeding with state regulation, I mean, we know we have to help those children be in that optimal place for feeding. And these are kids who sometimes we're having to medicate. You know, there's, there's some interesting developmental things going on in the NICU where they're trying different, you know, swaddled warm baths and other strategies to help keep them, you know, really regulated to help prepare for feeding, but it's a, um, a challenge. And actually feeding is one of the challenges that keeps these babies in the NICU or even just the hospital in general for a longer period of time. These babies, um, if you've never heard a baby with Nails cry, it's a, it's a really distinct, high pitched, you know, it sound they sound like they're in distress. So you think about babies and if you've been around infants, you know, they have different cries, but the the big cry that you hear in these infants is something that, you know, is unique and, and really kind of as a mom chugs at your heart a little bit. Yeah. And then some of the infants are medicated when they're in the NICU. Some of them are not, you know, kind of the more um, impacted children end up may have seizures, may have to um, have some seizure medication, but then they're discharged and they go home. And it's interesting to see what happens once they go home. So, in some states, 
neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome or NAS are considered automatic qualifiers for services. So you have that, you know, think about, again, I, I keep going back to that example of Down syndrome because it's just something that's very familiar to all of us. You know, you have Down syndrome, you're born, you're not showing any signs necessarily of delay at birth. A lot of children with Down syndrome are born and they develop great and they go home and they're hooked up to early intervention because we know they're at risk for later challenges. In some states, in with net, with nows are not an automatic qualification. They have to show that delay in order to qualify. In Ohio, where I live, through some of the advocacy work of some of the pediatricians um, and neonatologists around here, it is an automatic qualifier. These infants are automatically enrolled in early intervention. So they are hopefully followed. There's some data that suggests that these are kids are at risk for um, movement disorders early on, so plagiocephaly and torticollis. But then, you know, as a speech therapist, really optimally what we would do in early intervention in the first period, that early period, is helping to support language development, language growth, and responsiveness of the caregiver. So, you know, we know that responsiveness is tied to later language development. And these are caregivers who may have a lot on their plate. Some of these caregivers are foster parents. Some of them are kinship care. Some of these are the children's mothers who they go home with who are going through their own challenges around substance use disorder or maybe in some type of a treatment program and so a recovery program. So kind of figuring out how do we support caregivers being responsive and really help these children learn how to hopefully start regulating themselves as well. Another interesting kind of path that these children take when they're infants. So there's a group of children who go home who have feeding and swallowing challenges that continue. And then there's a group of children who develop what's called in the research as hyperphagia. So these are babies who start just feeding almost excessively to the point where they have catch-up growth because they were small when they were born. And they not only catch up, but then they start to have like almost excess growth. And it's interesting kind of for me, there's only a couple of studies out there that I've seen, but thinking about it, I mean, sucking is the number one regulator of or one of the number one regulators for infants to calm themselves, to soothe themselves. And if you think about caregiver strategies, I mean, there are lots of children who they cry and their parents, you know, they don't have any other underlying conditions. And the first thing parents think of to do is to give them a bottle. And so if these are babies who are already kind of dysregulated or in distress and the strategy that seems to be working is a bottle, then it's kind of like, okay, let's just keep feeding them instead of maybe helping the caregiver and child kind of learn, you know, some other strategies or signs that might help support um, calming and calming that infant. Yeah. Are there specific like feeding and swallowing deficits that you see with, with these kiddos? Are there any typically typical signs? So it's interesting that you ask about that there outside of the NICU. I have not really found a lot of literature that talks about what we expect to see feeding and swallowing wise in these children. But clinically, I do work PRN still at Cincinnati Children's and I see, you know, a couple, I see pretty much a, a birth to three feeding and swallowing caseload in the couple of days a month that I'm there. But I noticed that I had a couple of children who had had intrauterine exposure or were born with NAS who were also had pretty significant histories of aspiration. And in fact, when I did the the med collective, the winter collective in January, I did kind of a case study review of these two 
two of the children that I had worked with because I've worked with them for about 18, 24 months now. And they both were born with, you know, they had really significant histories of silent aspiration. And it continued to be the silent aspiration for, you know, over 12 months, which again, these are children who don't have any other really remarkable medical conditions. They don't have like, they're not kids with a history of CP. They're not kids with a history of some of the other neurological conditions that we start to think about, like, oh, that could would be at an increased risk. So I, I don't have the answer to that. It's something that I think is is really interesting. It's not unusual for children who aspirate to do so silently, but I've never seen data anywhere that says like of this population, this are these are how many kids are at risk for aspirating. You know, they both presented with what I would say are much more of a typical um, sensory pattern around feeding and swallowing um, with solids as well. So liquid wise, they've been aspirating pretty much their whole life. So they've been unmodified. They both had G-tubes. They've had modified diets. And then as we started to work on solid food, they had a, a very kind of pediatric feeding disorder type of reaction to food. And then as they started to, you know, kind of embrace eating, then it was interesting because it does start to kind of flip that switch a little bit where they were, they wanted to eat a lot. Um, so it, it's been an interesting, I don't have, I don't have a lot of solid, you know, pre-published data, but clinically I've definitely noticed that in children that I've been working with. Yeah. Let, let me ask you, this is a really far fetched statement and I have zero, it's just a thought that went through my head. Do you think that possibly the really drastic improvement or increase in pediatric feeding disorders has anything to do with this drastic increase in this opioid epidemic? So that's an interesting question. And I would say based on my, you know, 20 years of doing this, I think we just have such a better understanding of pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders. Like, I think that's much more the root contribution to why we see so many feeding, so many more feeding and swallowing disorders in children. I don't know that I would like go that far to say that that's, that that's that. But I think more importantly for clinicians who do have children who have that on their caseload to just kind of keep it on the radar that these are children who have different neurological systems. Their neurological symptoms have been impacted by a teratogen and they need to think about these children as neurological children and be as careful with them as they would with children who who have other neurological conditions. Yeah. Yeah. I think just when you start talking about the prevalence there, I was like, holy cow, this is much more, yeah, much more prevalent than I had thought. All right. So let's, let's move on. So we sort of talked about babies. Um, yeah. Let's, let's sort of talk about how it impacts language development and things like that. So looking at some of the developmental data, it's interesting. There are um, studies that look at children who are 18 to 24 months there are some studies that don't show as much of a difference, I think, as we would possibly expect or I would expect. But one of the questions that keeps coming back is the sensitivity of the instruments that are being used to look at language development in toddler and um, early early preschool age children. But we do know that there are some differences. You know, the Bailey is an assessment that's used pretty regularly, which is pretty broad looking at receptive and expressive language. And then it also has a, a cognitive component to it. We also know that there's some data that around 18 months, at least in one study, children who had what we call like more severe exposure. So these are kids who were hospitalized longer, required more medical interventions, 
when they were in the NICU, those babies um, have more severe language delays. And that started around 18 uh, months when they were looking at, at that group. And then it was interesting in 2021, there was a study that came out that looked at preschoolers. Um, the study was by Kim et al. And they were looking at preschoolers and their language and they used the self preschool. And if anybody uses the self preschool, sometimes we're like, oh, the self preschool, because it's long and it's got a lot of detail. But in many ways, that's what you want in something when you're trying to figure out, like, where's the difference? Is there a difference? You know, it's a it's a more sensitive assessment. And they found um, they did actually a really interesting study where, you know, they had they matched it with a controlled study and they matched as best they could. But they found that in receptive, expressive and total language, these children were three times more likely to have delayed scores than children who were not exposed in utero. And they adjusted for a variety of factors, you know, including gestational age and other risk factors, prematurity. And there's still this this difference. And the other thing that I thought was really interesting about that study is that they found things that were what they call confounding factors, the things that contributed to the delay. And those were gender. So boys were more likely to have delays than girls. The level of maternal education, which isn't surprising because that's something that we know is often tied to language outcomes in general. And then what they called prenatal risk. So prenatal risk was substance exposure, polysubstance exposure. One of the challenges in this population is that people who have a substance use disorder often have a, a preferred substance, but in the absence of that substance, they will use other substances. So children can be exposed to multiple things in utero. And then maternal depression was a component of that. And that's something that I thought was I think continues to be interesting because we know that maternal depression has an impact on, on language too, but that was prenatal maternal depression, not, not after birth. But things that were protective or actually helped the children have better language scores were sensitive and responsive parenting coming from a stimulating environment, which, you know, I mean, that's somewhat challenging to measure in some ways. And then participation in early childhood education. And so if you think about early intervention and early preschool, that's part of the reason that that can be something that's so important for that for that group of children. Awesome. Thank you so much, Erin. This is great. So when you start to look at school age, and school age in the study was defined to be three to eight years of age. So this was a study by Phil et al. in Tennessee. And it was a really interesting study. So they took data from like the state health insurance database and they tied it to special education data. So they were able to, they think, link infants who were born with neonatal abstinence syndrome from the NICU to infants who, to school-aged children who were either referred for, tested for, or receiving special education services. And so the reason I think this study is so important or so, something that people should really think about is that it, sometimes, you know, again, when they're a year and a half or two years old, people say, oh, well, they look like they're doing okay. I don't know if they really need to stick around in early intervention. But when we look at them in three to eight years of age, speech and language delays are the most common service that they're receiving. And in terms of number, the highest number of children, that's the diagnosis that they're receiving at that three to eight year of age. So, you know, thinking about like, oh, I don't know if they really need to be here. Do we need to discharge them or not? Well, there's data that tells us that speech and language is the developmental delay in speech and language are the biggest diagnoses that they have when they get into school. So if we have the capacity when they're younger to maybe monitor them, to support them, help facilitate, 
can we change their trajectory so that when they go to school, they're not requiring and they don't have that gap between where they could have been learning and being supported by somebody till they're getting into school and failing before they're getting a referral to get the services that they need. Yeah. I love everything you're saying here. And it sounds like it's something that I think everything that you're pointing out is just knowing all of these risks and sort of staying on top of it. I think as, as you mentioned, you know, when babies with Down syndrome are born, they have an automatic referral to EI in, in some states and in some they don't. But I think, you know, following these these kids along that trajectory is going to be so important. So thank you for for pointing all of that out. Hopefully some people are able to help make some screening changes in their schools or facilities or something based on this. So thank you. One of the strategies that could be beneficial for us as speech language pathologists to think about how do we change the outcomes is to think about how do we educate our graduate students in this area. You know, that's one of the things as a program director for a new program, I've had the opportunity to think about how do I want my students to learn about this. And I'm fortunate to be um, at a university that has a simulation center. So we have started talking about how we can use the infant simulator to help our students kind of replicate what a baby with neonatal abstinence syndrome looks like when they're feeding. And we would teach our students to, you know, provide both the direct intervention for that um, but then also to be able to counsel and talk to families in a in a safe, you know, no risk environment. I think one of the big challenges that students have in this area is this is a population many of them have no experience with. And they may come to the table with some preconceived notions or some things that they've learned that might not be accurate about this population. And so giving them the opportunity to practice some of these skills through simulation is at least at the neonatal level. And area um, where we could start, I think, and I do think more programs are continuing to do this, but really thinking about how do we teach our students about trauma-informed care. You know, we talk about the challenges for these babies once they leave the NICU, but the reality is these are children who in many ways will most likely be impacted by some type of trauma um, in their life. If they are in kinship care or if they have some type of situation where their primary caregiver, their mother, usually is the primary caregiver is going through some type of substance treatment themselves, there may be, you know, times where they are with family versus with their mother. We know that there's a risk for poverty and homelessness in people who have substance use disorder, which are, you know, significant contributors to to trauma in these children. And then, you know, the reality is, as we have more synthetic drugs in the United States, I mean, the county I live in just recently had the highest number of overdose deaths that they've had since the um, opioid epidemic started in the United States. And it's because of synthetic drugs that are are really um, powerful and potent in killing people. And not that we want our students to have to think that, you know, get ready for all these terrible situations, but having a discussion about what trauma-informed care looks like is a great starting place, not just for children who've been exposed to opioids, but for all sorts of other experiences that families and caregivers have that can result in trauma, both for our patients, but then for the people who care for them as well. Yeah. Yeah. It was sort of a word that I just didn't really know much about until maybe the last year or so, you know, it was sort of like, I understood the concept, but I never knew that the coined phrase trauma-informed care until, you know, like I said, maybe the last year or two. And I, and I truly wish it was something that more SLPs knew a lot more about because it's just something that we work with daily. Absolutely. I'm 
fortunate. I was a stu- graduate student of David Luterman at Emerson, who, if anybody's ever read Counseling for Communication Disorders. Yeah. Yes. But I mean, that book is just, you know, yeah. it's so interesting. Like I, I still use it. I still tell students, take it. You can sit down. You can literally read it cover to cover in two hours. And I recommend that you keep it in your career and you go back and you read it from time to time to really kind of remind yourself. But even though he wasn't using the words trauma informed, you know, a lot of what he talks about kind of gives you that foundation and, and really being respectful and empathetic to where people are coming from and, and their perspective. And so learning about trauma informed care as we've gone on, I've, I just feel extremely fortunate that I had that training from him and kind of gave, you know, a little bit of that perspective of, of really thinking about how a family feels coming to a table and what do you need to do to meet them where they're at. And then as we have, you know, other resources around trauma informed care, specifically trying to integrate those into training our students, our early professionals, and even some of our professionals who've been in the field for a while, who these are different areas or they're moving to new populations where they might not understand what what is kind of co-occurring or what's contributing to the challenges that a patient or family may have. Yeah, yeah. I remember reading that book in grad school and I think I took like a one credit elective on counseling and it was one of my most favorite classes that I took. So Thank you, Erin. That was also helpful. I, I would love to sort of switch gears a little bit. I'd love to hear, you know, like you said, you have the privilege of starting this new program. And I, I'd really just love to dive into that a little bit, if you can. And sort of is, is was this a goal of yours? Was it always something that you wanted to develop a new program or be in part of that? Or did you sort of fall into this? Yeah. Love, spill the beans. So, it, no, it was never, never a dream of mine. I would say being innovative is something that I've always really valued. I, I like the opportunity to be creative, but um, you know, this new program was opening in Cincinnati and someone approached me and I kind of cautious. And, but as I learned about the university that I'm at, I really, you know, it's a small university, um, small Catholic university. I, in many ways feels like home because of going to Catholic schools for the majority of my life, but the opportunity to really develop something. So, you know, think about all of, the times. Well, for me, all the times I'm like, well, why don't we do it this way? Or why couldn't we do that? Or I think we should do this. And, you know, I, I'm fortunate that I've worked with people in the past who've kind of also said like, okay, go for it. You know, they've given me a little bit of, I don't know what the right word is, confidence maybe that I can do some of these things. And so, you know, the opportunity was really there, you know, you get to design, you get to choose, obviously, within the CAA standards and the things that we need to meet to train our students. But the idea to have or the opportunity to have that creativity and flexibility to develop something new was appealed to me. And so I, um, I started this interesting journey. Yeah. Yeah. What are, I, I guess, share some things that might have surprised you or some things that I guess were, were easier or some things that were harder than you thought they would be? A challenge that I don't think I necessarily realized prior to this role was really the depth and breadth. Although we talk about the depth and breadth of the profession, the depth and breadth of a graduate program's responsibility yes. to its students. You know, in my previous role, I worked with a couple of different program directors for different programs at a, at a university, say a couple of different uh, master's programs in speech pathology. And so I knew just these little pieces of, of my program, but then thinking about how do you really show that you are meeting the requirements in all of these different areas and thinking about continuous improvement plans, 
um, you know, ensuring that your faculty have all of the credentials that they need. There's a really um, substantial commitment and it's appreciated that the graduate programs that we design really will generate students who meet the qualifications that we need them to meet to be competent speech pathologists when they walk out the door. And so that was a, you know, those were things I knew, but I think those sometimes you, things you know, until you have to create and do on your own, you don't, you cognitively know them, but you don't necessarily know everything that goes into getting to that, to that place. So that's been a challenge, but also an opportunity again, to think, how can we make sure we meet, we meet these goals I would say another thing that's been a, a very pleasant surprise is how open CAA, the individuals who work for CAA have been to helping to support us, to support new programs. You know, there are some disciplines that are their accreditation programs, accrediting bodies are not known to be as supportive. And, you know, uh, CAA has been very responsive, able to provide information. And, and that's that's something that's been appreciated, too. Yeah, cool. I, I think, you know, what's so hard with all these conversations is I, I, I don't envy you, Erin. Let me put it that way. I think just the, like you said, the depth and the breadth of what has to go into creating a graduate curriculum we know is so vast. And then the tough part is we still have clinicians that come out and say, well, I never learned about that in grad school or that was never taught to me. And I would sort of just love to hear your perspective being on, on the other side of the aisle now, you know, what, yeah, what, <laughs> What do you say to that? It's a very challenging yeah. situation. You know, when you are in graduate school, you are learning so much so fast. I mean, I think about myself when I go to a six hour, eight hour continuing education event and I walk and I have a foundation on which to build. You know, I'm not like randomly going to something I don't know anything about. I have a clinical foundation. I, I would like to think I have a pretty solid body of knowledge, but I know I walk out of the door and I, I forget things. I think one of the things that is really important that is very, very challenging to do in graduate education is the opportunity to have hands-on experience to apply the information that you learn. I think we can teach in a classroom, and we know that's about adult education in general, but we can teach you all of the content, but until you have someone sitting in front of you that you have to differentially diagnose their speech pattern, it doesn't mean very much to you. And it's much, much harder to retain. You know, I, I had a student say to me one time and, and when I was teaching motor speech disorders and I, I, I was struggling as a teacher to understand why the students were struggling so much. And she said, well, everybody's heard a kid on TV who says W for R, but not many of us have heard an adult who actually has dysarthria. And I was like, you know, that's a really interesting and kind of, so how do we create these mental crosswalks for students, yeah. right? And I, I do think that, I personally think that simulation as a component of how we train our students is something that has a lot of opportunity to help them be able to maintain, to learn and and use and then maintain those skills. You know, one of the things that we put into this program, again, this idea of you kind of, how do you solve the problems that you see, right, is what we're calling a simulation and integration series. So each semester, the students have a, a class where they take the activities that are related to that, whether it be a language sample analysis or using high fidelity simulator to, to imitate a bedside 12 evaluation where they go in every week and they practice the clinical skills or they go through case studies in small groups 
with academic facilitators to try to take the information they're learning in the classroom and to apply it. And I, I think for students to have opportunities to high quality clinical supervisors when they are in a graduate program is something that we can't, I can't stress the importance and value and appreciation for that enough. You know, we're all taxed as clinicians to the max and then some, and then to think about now I'm going to add on, could you take a student? And a good supervisor knows that that's more work. You know, that's not sometimes people are like, oh, they do your job for you. Yeah. Well, no, not, not really. And particularly in what I would say are kind of more high risk situations. So acute care, swallowing, babies in the NICU, these, these more challenging populations, you know, those supervisors are never turning those students loose and saying, oh, go do my job. They're right there day in and day out having to, to coach and train and teach. And, you know, I, I personally can't thank supervisors enough for being willing to take students, being willing to give of themselves and their time and their knowledge. And I think that that's just, it's a challenge that we have in, in clinical education because we need our students to get out there and to do that. And if they don't learn the right things from the people who are training them, I mean, those are the patterns that they take with them into their own practice. And so I think that that, but to kind of get back to your question, I apologize. Having the opportunity to do hands-on activities will, I feel, helps solidify. Yeah. I did learn this and this is how I know I learned it because I learned it in this patient or I learned it in this simulation or something along those lines. Yeah. 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 Thank you. I know we, I was just part of a big meeting last night sort of about that. And it was just night and day between, you know, the, the evolution of the student clinician with a fantastic and hands-on involved supervisor versus one that, like you just said, go see all my patients, you know, and, and it's, it's tough. I know, you know, Asha has the supervision requirement now, but it's, you know, it's not much. It's just what a few hours of CEUs, but it's, it's, yeah, it, it is hard because it, it does make such a drastic difference on, you know, on our colleagues and on our student clinicians. And yeah, I wish there was something more that, that could be done there, but it, it's tough when you're also at, you know, productivity limits and you're being stressed and taxed to do so much with your job, let alone stop and explain things to a student. But, you know, we, we need it. We need it. <laughs> so yeah. Any final thoughts? This was a great conversation. Lots of, lots of great points. You know, um, you know, like I said, thank you for having me. And I, I, I think one of the things that I always find interesting about the podcast and the other, you know, different continuing education opportunities, it's so interesting. You know, sometimes students are like, Oh, I'm done. And I'm like, well, yeah, no, because I think once you get into practice, the more you do, the more you realize how much you don't know. And so, you know, really thinking about how do we foster and this kind of goes into what we're talking about, you know, how do we foster lifelong learning? in our students, but in ourselves and just having, you know, different opportunities, just little tidbits here and there that we can pick up that help make us better clinicians. Yeah. Thank you. I, I know one of the reasons I just still continue to love doing the podcast is just meeting people like, well, I know, I know I've known you, but learning more about this topic, you know, this is something I know nothing about. And it's, it's crazy to think that some SLPs just work with one specific population that others of us have never had any experience with. So that's why I love to keep doing it. And hopefully, you know, some SLP out there will get reinvigorated or re-inspired to work with a new population or learn more about something. So thank you, Erin. I always appreciate talking with you. Thank you. I appreciate talking to you too. 
And that's a wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.